Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll be in just the first two verses. If you're going to use the Bibles there and the seat back in front of you, you'll find this text on page 947. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have heard this morning, there is none like you among the gods, nor are there any works like yours, none so great, none so gracious, none so merciful. And all the nations you have made will come and worship before your Lord. And so we pray that you would make our hearts now among those peoples who bow before Christ comes again, that both now and on that last day we will glorify your name, for you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we would walk in your truth. Unite our hearts now to fear your name. Stir us to give thanks to you our Lord and our God, with our whole hearts, with all of our being, that we would glorify your name forever. For your steadfast love toward us is very great. You have delivered our lives from the grave, and we will dwell with you forever. And so help us now to hear from your word and worship you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I've preached at various times over the last couple years, I've preached within this series the essence of the Christian life, where we've just covered specific passages of Scripture that help us grasp and distill down a few essential elements of what it means to follow Jesus. So we looked at the essence of the Christian life as a whole from Galatians 5, 1 to 6, the essence of our motivation from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 16, the essence of our hope from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, the essence of our power and wisdom from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, the essence of our confidence, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, the essence of our gaze, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, the essence of our unity, union with Christ through the Spirit. And today I want us to consider together the essence of our worship as followers of Jesus Christ. What does proper worship of God entail? Many of you know the story when Jesus was sitting with a woman at the well in Samaria. He said to her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So God the Father, Jesus is saying, is seeking a people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we should be glad if we are counted among that number. What a privilege. That the whole of redemptive history, Jesus is even alluding to that, is coming to a head in him, in Christ, in order that a people may be redeemed and taken as God's own special 
possession to worship him, the one true God, from the heart according to who he is and what he's done in Christ. So I want us to consider the question, what is he talking about? What does he mean? How do we do this? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us answer those questions here in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That in essence, the Apostle Paul is saying that as recipients of God's mercies in Christ, offer the whole of yourself as a sacrifice to God in Christ and none of yourself to the world. That's his point. As those who are recipients of the mercies of God in Christ, we're now to offer all of ourselves to God in Christ and none of ourselves to the world. Because every day, every human being has to decide who and what to worship. Not if, but who and what. Because to be human is to worship. It is to ascribe glory. It's as natural as breathing. Whether you notice or not, we worship all the time. We're created to worship. We instinctively worship. In fact, we love to worship. We love to be enthralled. We love to be enamored. We love to give exaltation. Just look at about 4,000 or so religions that currently exist across the world just to prove that point. If we don't know of a God, we will make one up. We will find one. And we will bow down to it. Thousands upon thousands of gods have been adored and feared and revered and trusted across human history. We just can't avoid worship. Even every week across the world, people gather in stadiums and coliseums of sports to declare praise. Not everyone there is worshiping, but many are. Movie theaters, concert halls, music festivals, concerts are full of people ascribing glory, giving honor, giving praise. Not everyone who goes, it's not wrong to go, but many who are there are giving themselves in worship, whether we realize it or not. We love to give our bodies to things. We can't avoid it. We simply decide to whom, to what, and how. You feel it, right? I mean, I feel it every day. The desire to give myself to something, to devote myself to someone worthy of that devotion. And this is why Paul says what he says in these two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, could say brothers and sisters. And that's point one, therefore. 
He says, therefore, because the basis for Paul's appeal is the previous 11 chapters of Romans. In chapters 9 to 11 in particular, he's gone to great lengths in these chapters expounding the greatness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. According to Romans 1, the whole world to which we belong was lost in the miseries of false worship. Along with the whole world, we refused to give God thanks. We refused to give him the honor that he was due. We preferred to worship the creation, not the creator. And so our bodies were given over to all kinds of sin and misery. Some of us don't have to think back very far to remember. But even the nation of Israel in Romans 2 was woefully lost in their self-righteousness, in their arrogance as those who had the law, but they couldn't keep it. And so in Romans 3, Paul's going to make it really clear to us, really clear to everyone, that the whole world was, is, and will never be righteous before him. Was, is, and will always be unrighteous on their own before him. None understand, he says. None do good. None seek after God. Even those who think they were seeking after God were seeking after him wrongly. But then in the final verses of Romans 3, the apostle Paul is going to present the greatest news the world will ever hear or know. That apart from our ability to keep the law, God provides a way to be righteous before him through faith in Jesus Christ. Though we are all sinners, both Jew and Gentile, we can be justified, which means declared righteous before God by God. And we can be redeemed, which means purchased or ransomed from slavery and sin and death. And all of that, Paul says, because of the gift of his grace. All who turn from their sin to trust in Christ, who trust in his finished work upon the cross, can be forgiven, can be reconciled. This was not a new idea, according to Romans 4. Jesus Christ is the Savior to which Abraham looked. He's the only Savior to which Abraham looked and hoped in. Romans 5, this is the salvation that secures peace with God so that we who are in Christ can stand firmly upon the ground of his grace, not our works. And according to Romans 5, no longer do we stand in the unrighteousness of Adam, the unrighteous one. But we who are in Christ stand in the righteousness of Christ, the righteous one. And because we've been united to Christ in his death, in his resurrection, Romans 6, sin no longer has dominion over us, which is why our bodies are no longer instruments of unrighteousness, but of righteousness. And yet, as we all know, the battle with sin is not finished, Romans 7. Though sin does not have mastery over us, it still claws at us. It still rears its ugly head in our lives, forcing us to hope in Christ and him alone for final victory, Romans 7.25. And because our battle with sin remains, we must continually be reminded that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. The Lord has adopted us and will never leave us, 
The Lord has placed his spirit inside us to secure us and to help us. He has justified us in Christ. He sanctifies us in Christ. He will glorify us in Christ. In Romans 8.31, if the Lord is with us, who can be against us? Because nothing and no one will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. According to Romans 9, Paul is saying these things not only to a remnant of Jews, but primarily to Gentiles. Because salvation comes through Abraham's faith, not through Abraham's DNA. Just as the Lord said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9.15. That if you have received God's mercy in Christ, it's because God decided to give you mercy in Christ. If you've received his compassion, it's because he chose to show you compassion. This is why he says in Romans 9.16, it depends not upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so here you are, a Gentile, saved in Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Here we are, Gentiles, who have received the riches of his mercy as vessels of mercy prepared for glory. The Lord has been faithful to his promises in saving a remnant from the people of Israel. As a whole, they have rejected their Messiah. Romans 10. They tried to establish a righteousness of their own, Romans 10. Refused to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord or believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. They scorned the only means by which they could be saved. In fact, Romans 11, the Lord ordained this partial hardening to Israel in order for the gospel to spread into the whole world and save Gentiles. Like us. The Lord broke off a great many branches from the vine of Israel in order to graft in a great many branches from the nations. Why? Because the Lord always intended to extend his hand of salvation to a people from every tribe and tongue, from every nation, in order to fulfill his eternal purposes in Jesus Christ. Though no one quite understood it, the Lord always intended to bring to light this mystery of the Old Testament, the church, where Jew and Gentile are united together by one grace, by one mercy, in one Savior and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of that to the glory of God. This is why Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore. Therefore. If you have received these great mercies from God, offer your entire being back to God in worship. That's what he's saying. God didn't spare his own son, 
but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God who did not spare or hold back his spirit, but generously poured him into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit who will raise us from the grave on the last day. Therefore, devote every detail of your existence to his glory. I pray we see his logic. I pray we understand that basis for his appeal. He urges us. He appeals to us. He calls us brothers and sisters because we have now been adopted by grace into the family of God. He calls to our minds all these lavish mercies of God in Christ in order to say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's point two, give yourself to the glory of God. Therefore, give the whole of yourself to the glory of God. Devote your physical body as an expression of your thankful, redeemed soul to the glory and pleasure of your Redeemer. Your time, your work, your words, your hobbies, your driving, your possessions, your food, your drink, your body, an offering to him. Because again, he reminds us, the father generously gave the body and blood of his son as an offering for your sin. Therefore, generously give your body as an offering for his glory. God the Father generously gave his spirit to fill your body and make it his living temple. Therefore, offer up your body as a living temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is as anti-spirit of our age as it gets, that we're not our own, that we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in our bodies. And it's worth saying that we belong to a good Savior. This is not being given over to a cruel taskmaster. That's who Satan is. That's what the world is. That's what sin is. Jesus is a good Savior. God is a good Father. And our bodies are bought with the price of Christ's blood. Therefore, let us arise every morning and present our bodies as living, breathing vehicles for his pleasure, for his honor. That's what he's saying. Because here's the sobering truth. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, if you refuse to turn from sin and trust in him, then the best you can ever offer God is a life of false worship. No matter how religious it might be, whether by indulging the deeds of the flesh or indulging the deeds of self-righteous religion, the best you will ever offer God is false. And someday your body will die then on a later day, your body will be raised in immortality and thrown into a lake of fire, a second death, 
where it will forever offer to God the worship you owe him. And so what is hell? It is a gigantic, everlasting, well-deserved sacrifice to God where the souls and bodies of all who reject Jesus Christ are offered up in worship to God forever. Your body will give glory to God for eternity, whether as a living sacrifice or as a dying sacrifice. And so Paul urges us now, don't wait for that last day to bow your knee to him and confess that he's Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to hear his voice and not harden your heart. To turn from sin and trust in Jesus so that starting today, your body can be a living sacrifice to God. Not be reserved for an eternity of a dying sacrifice to God. And because this is the worship that God seeks... This is why Paul says it's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I think the grace and mercy of that statement is striking. The fact that we, as sinners, can be holy before God, can be acceptable to God, can be pleasing to God. Because we're in Christ, because we're made new, because we're united to Christ by faith. And the Apostle Paul calls this our spiritual worship, which could be translated our reasonable service of worship, our rational exercise of worship in response to the mercies of God. Notice he doesn't say worship in order to receive mercy from God. He says, because you've received mercy from God, worship. That when we grasp the mercies of God, that are displayed and proclaimed in the first 11 chapters of Romans, worship becomes the reasonable response, the rational response. There's nothing more coherently logical in the whole universe than redeemed people giving worship to God. Redeemed people giving their lives to God, giving their bodies over to God. So no matter how insane The world may think we look or sound from heaven. It's the only reasonable thing that happens here. It's the only rational exercise God sees from heaven is worship toward him in Christ by his spirit. So a couple questions I think just worth reflecting on even now. Number one, in light of what God has done for you in Christ, do you think he now asks too much of you? In light of what he's done for me in Christ, do I think he's done too much? Or he's asking too much? And I know sometimes I act as if he asks too much. There's days where I rise and I think he asks too much. Wait, you want everything? Like all my time? All the resources? All my energy? All my emotion? All my affection? all the activity of my body in some way oriented toward you, in some way serving your pleasure, your glory. That's why we have to remember constantly the mercies of God that he has lavished upon us in Christ. So that we'll realize when he says, present back to me your body as a living sacrifice, we realize he does not ask too much. 
Or number two, in light of the mercies of God in saving us, do we want to live a life pleasing to him? What an encouragement to know that you can live a life pleasing to him. The question is, do you want to? Do I want to? I want to rise in the morning and ask God to help me live a life that is pleasing to him. Not a life that is pleasing to the world. Not a life that is conformed to the pattern of the world. Not a life that when the world looks at me, they don't see any difference. They just see a reflection of itself. Which is why Paul says what he does next in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Because that's the alternative. How do we go about offering up our bodies to him in worship? How do we go about offering what God is asking for? Well, don't be conformed to the world. That's where it starts. Because until we depart this present world to be with the Lord, we can't escape living in this present world. We're not meant to. We're going to be surrounded by thousands of false versions of false worship every day. Thousands of forms of wickedness and evil bombarded constantly with ideas and images that will feed our pride, feed our selfishness, feed our sense of entitlement, feed our individualism, feed our self-determination, feed our self-esteem, feed our self-sufficiency. Your body is your own personal amusement park, so do with it whatever you please. Your loves are your own, So love whomever you please, however you please, to whatever end you please. Your time, your money, your resources, they belong only to you. So spend them however you want for your pleasure. That is the shape into which the world is trying to mold us. That is the pattern into which the spirit of the age is trying to shape us. And that's some of the irony of anyone who would ever claim to live only for themselves, to be their own person, that they're unique and distinctive because they live for themselves. And you just want to say, right, along with everybody else, along with seven billion others, well, I'm speaking my truth. Yes, just like everybody else. It's not a new idea. Living for self, self-entitlement self-determination, self-sufficiency. That all the forms of self-whatever in this world aren't new, and they're not uncommon. It's the way the whole world does it. Because there's only two options, the Lord's mold or the world's mold. So Paul's saying, don't be conformed to the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That Greek verb there for transformed, metamorphumai, is used three other times in the New Testament, twice in reference to the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9, 2 and Matthew 17, 2, and then once in 2 Corinthians 3, 18 in reference to how the Holy Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. And so Jesus was transfigured or transformed before his disciples on the mount. And now he, by his spirit, is transfiguring us or transforming us into his image, one degree of glory at a time. And the means by which he does it is right there, the renewal 
of your mind. Submitting our minds to the word of God over and over again. Prayerfully asking that the Holy Spirit change us from one degree of glory to the next through that word every day. And that brings about a kind of transformation that is continual. A kind of transformation that is comprehensive. And so this is really important. That at the end of the day, our bodies are going to go where our minds tell them to. That our bodies are going to follow the thoughts and desires of our hearts. The meditations of our hearts. Just like a bee is drawn to nectar. Just as a stream is drawn downhill by gravity to the lake at the bottom. So our bodies will be drawn to what our minds dwell upon. To what our minds fix upon. To what our minds trust in. And so the surrounding world is going to tempt us, often by appealing to our bodies. The world's going to put things before our eyes, appealing to our desires, and often the desires of our bodies, but then our mind relates to that temptation. We look at it, we think about it, we appraise it, and then we either dwell on it and fantasize about it and fixate on a desire for it and follow it, or we relate to that temptation and resist that temptation by looking to and talking to Christ. Listen to Colossians 3, 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is how we kill sin. This is how we kill what he calls evil desire, impurity, and sexual immorality, which Colossians 3.5, he says, amounts to idolatry. And so we kill false worship and idolatry of the body, he says, by seeking things that are above where Christ is. By setting our minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. We can't always control what our eyes see. We can't always control what our ears hear. We cannot control what temptations are thrown before us, but by God's grace, by the Spirit, we are able to decide, do we set our minds on those things? Do we fixate on those things? Do we dwell upon those things? Or do we set our mind on things that are above, where Christ is? That's how we're transformed, one means by which we're transformed. But I think we should all be encouraged that from the Lord's point of view, we're not done yet. From the Lord's point of view, it's not finished. When the Lord looks at you in your life, he is not expecting to see sinless perfection. But he is bringing about progress, growth, change. Because know for certain that the world is going to try to form you into its mold. By submitting our minds and wills to its way of thinking. Satan is crafty. Satan is a liar. Satan can take something that looks really good like a piece of fruit. That would be really tasty to eat and convince us this would be really good to consume. And in doing so, the whole human race 
falls into sin and misery. Because we're not at war with a tadpole, right? But a dragon, a serpent, a roaring lion. There's a reason Satan isn't portrayed as a gerbil in Scripture. Like the images that Scripture puts before us are frightening and dangerous and consuming and poisonous and fire-breathing so that we wouldn't trust the mouthpieces that he uses in the world around us, but entirely would submit ourselves to the Word of God. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The process of sanctification is here portrayed like the process of refining or testing a piece of precious metal, like gold. That the faith we receive as a gift of the Holy Spirit, it begins like this block of ore that's been pulled out of the earth. This rock with all this gold in it. What he's saying is don't just throw that rock back into the earth to be conformed by the earth. God's going to take it and throw it in a furnace. He's going to pound it to dust. He's going to melt it down so that the gold of your faith can be molded and shaped to the image of Christ. And there's a very specific outcome that he's promising that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or could, this could be translated, prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That by the process of this testing, by the process of this sanctification, by our transformation, by the renewal of our mind, that he will, through us and to us, prove what is good and acceptable and perfect in his will. That as recipients of the mercies of God in Christ, we present our bodies now to the Lord each day in worship, not indulging the desires of the flesh according to the patterns of the world, but to the Lord through his word in order for our minds to be renewed and our lives transformed. And so we dwell upon Christ and his work, not our works. We dwell upon Christ and not the sinful flesh. And in doing so, he says, we're going to prove that God's will really is good. That God's will really is acceptable. That God's will really is perfect. 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says that's the will of God, your sanctification that you would learn and that I would learn over time how to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God, not to sexual immorality, not to the lusts and cravings of the world. Now, you take that message out into the world and what are they going to say to you? You take that message to the world that what is good, what is acceptable, what is pleasing is for my body to be sexually pure, and do only enjoy the gift of sex in the bounds of marriage with one spouse that I've committed to until death. What will the world think of that? Or to say what is good, what is truly acceptable, what is truly pleasing, 
is for my body to enjoy gifts that God has given, but always in moderation, never to excess, never to escape, never for the gift itself, but always in honor of the one who gave it. You see, we're to the world. That's a laughable idea. And so we need the word of God and the people of God around us to keep reminding us this will of God is good. This is acceptable. This is perfect. And as a church, I hope we are coming to realize that such a life of humble, holy, total, joyful service to the Lord is the good life. Remember that when you're changing diaper 492 of the week and wiping up whatever you're wiping up around your house and rising early in the morning or in the middle of the night to care for six kid or sick kids or caring for a spouse as they're ailing and dying or caring for your parents in their aging years or serving others in the body of Christ sacrificially though painfully remember in those moments this is the good life this is the pleasing life this is the acceptable life that sanctification is the will of God and it is good to him. It is pleasing to him. So college students, you're going to have to fight to believe that. You're not going to hear that in the classroom. Not these classrooms. Might be classrooms somewhere you do. Not here. Or high school students, you're going to have to fight to believe that. You're not going to see that on TikTok much. Or Instagram. Or Twitter. Or whatever the letter is now that we're following for that. You can find little bits of truth and helpful encouragement in those places, but it's rare. I like to say that social media, it's little bits of good truth floating on trays in the middle of a river of raw sewage. That's what it is. And so you better have a wetsuit if you're going to go out there and grab that stuff. Because what it's not going to teach you and show you and pound into your heart and mind how good the will of God is for us, our sanctification. And that we would learn to possess our bodies in honor and in worship to God. It's interesting that the passage to follow, verse 2, is focused upon the church functioning as a healthy spiritual body. Where every member of the church uses their specific gifts that the Spirit gives to them in their redeemed bodies to serve and build up the church. When we offer our entire being to the Lord each day, because of his lavish mercies that he's poured out on us in Christ, it produces verses 3 to 21. An increasingly loving church. An increasingly unified, joyful, generous, thankful, patient group of Christians pursuing Christ and his glory together. That's what it produces. So how do we apply this each day? I want to offer four points of application before we close. Application one is that true worship is wholehearted worship, not calloused. We're to be living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices. We're to be wholehearted, not half-hearted. Remember in Genesis 4, Cain is right there next to Abel bringing his crops as an offering but not with a whole heart, not cheerfully. 
not with a joyful spirit rooted in genuine faith toward God, but begrudgingly. You would probably be here in the room today, singing, praying, listening to this sermon, taking notes, but his mind would be somewhere else. He would honor with his lips, but his heart would be far away. So Jesus Christ died in our place for sin. The Spirit of God gave us new hearts united to him, not simply for us to worship God, but for us to enjoy it, for us to love it, for us to give our whole heart to it. And this is a battle, right? This is the battle I personally feel most acutely that I need to remember the mercies of God every day so that I remember to enjoy worship. So I remember to delight in the offering of my heart, my mind to him. I need you, I need brothers and sisters around me who are gonna remind me of the mercies of God in Christ in order to keep stirring me to see the joy of communion and fellowship and worship of God. We have to pray to keep giving our hearts entirely to God. Number two, true worship is whole being worship, not compartmentalized. That Christ purchased us and fills us so that we would offer mind and body, soul and body, not just one or the other. In other words, the Lord doesn't seek our agreement with his word while we reserve our bodies for ourselves. The Lord doesn't seek our bodies in a frenzy of spiritual activity while our hearts are detached or distracted. Recall the Corinthian church gathered every week to consider great truths of the gospel. They gave their minds and words to wonderful spiritual things. Then they gave their bodies to sexual immorality and drunkenness and eating in temples of idols. And so they offered a part of themselves but not the whole. That's a danger too, right? For all of us, I feel it. I feel it every day, I feel it every week to be present in body and soul, my whole being, to give the Lord the full attention of my body and heart. Even to prepare ourselves on Saturday to be ready to gather with the church on Sunday. Or do I run my mind and body like a workhorse all day, long into the night, binge watching, gaming, whatever it might be, hitting the pillow somewhere around 3 a.m. and then dragging in here like a dead horse, barely present, mind everywhere. That doesn't mean there aren't times where we have overnight things that we've got to tackle or serve or take care of or that we're not going to come in at times exhausted or tired. But that's the battle, is how do we give unto the Lord our whole being and not just compartments of ourselves. Thirdly, true worship is whole life worship, not curtailed. And curtailed means limited or partial, where we offer one day and not the next. We offer one hour, not the next. We offer our homes, but not our work. Our time, but not our money. Our money, but not our time. One friendship, but not another. Our pleasant days, but not our painful days. 
In Malachi 2, the men of Israel were bowing before the altar of the Lord in tears, begging him to hear their prayers, weeping and groaning in the temple because the Lord was not hearing those prayers, was not blessing their efforts. And they ask him, why aren't you hearing? And he's like, well, here's why I'm refusing your offerings. He says, because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. And though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. They were dealing treacherously with their wives. The men of Israel from that day could very easily be in here. Singing, praying. They probably would be in here. They'd probably be the first ones in here. Maybe the last ones even to leave. They would give their Sundays to the Lord. But at home the rest of the week. In their marriages, in their supposed free time, they served a different God. You know, the Nordic Vikings had different gods for every day of the week. Praise God, we have one God for all day, every day. Whole life worship. Whole heart worship, whole being worship, whole life worship. And then lastly, holy set apart worship not compromised worship. Because we live in this present world. We can't avoid living in this present world. We shouldn't avoid living in this present world. We eat, we drink, we work, we sleep, we walk, we talk, we relate to people. We enjoy the gifts of food, of drink, of the rest of creation. We enjoy the gifts of our relationships. But what we always have to guard against is elevating the gifts above the giver. Elevating the giver of the gifts and his glory above everything that he gives is the constant daily prayer. And this could be the hardest part. To enjoy the gift of sex as God gives it in the context of marriage as an expression of godly love for spouse for the glory of God. To enjoy the gift of food with thanksgiving but in moderation without taking refuge in it, to enjoy a glass of wine, but with soberness, without using it to escape, but as a means to celebrate the goodness of God and the presence of good friends, to enjoy the gift of exercise without using it as a vehicle for vanity or as a self-righteous work, to labor faithfully in our workplaces, but not from fear of man, not from greed, neither being lazy nor frenzied, but working wisely and diligently to the Lord. That's the art of the Christian life, isn't it? To live in this same world that people who aren't in Christ live. To enjoy many of the same gifts the rest of the world enjoys, but in a completely different way. For a completely different reason. Based on a completely different set of mercies for the glory of a whole different person. As those who are in Christ, we pray to be distinct from the world in how we relate to both God and the world he created, which means how we relate to our bodies. That every day you're walking around in a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we gather here together, we compose together the temple of the Holy Spirit with all these parts 
And so no wonder he wants our bodies devoted entirely to him. Our bodies seen as these instruments of righteousness from him and to him and through him. And so we enjoy the gifts of God. We just don't cling to them. We appreciate the gifts of God. We don't corrupt them. We celebrate the gifts of God, but we don't worship them. We are wholly set apart to worship the one who gives them. That's what Paul's saying. God the Father lavished his grace, lavished his mercy upon us. He didn't hold back. The Father didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. How will he not also with him freely give us everything? Jesus Christ gave himself for us, fully God, fully man, held nothing back. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. He doesn't bless us partially, but fully. Our reasonable, rational, proper, good response, wholehearted worship, whole being worship, whole life worship, and wholly set apart for God worship. Let's pray.